and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is James Steiner Dillon, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Dayton School of Law. We will discuss his article, Sticking Points, Epistemic Pluralism in Legal Challenges to Mandatory Vaccination Policies, which will be published in the University of Cincinnati Law Review. So welcome to the podcast, James. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, no, the pleasure's all mine. As you know, I've been, you know, following your work for a while and always been really interested in your work on epistemology and epistemic practices in, in the law. But for listeners who may not be acquainted with, with the term, maybe you could talk a little bit about what epistemology is and why it's relevant to discussions of of legal practice and in particular of evidence. Sure. I mean, I guess most simply stated, epistemology is the philosophical study of uh, of truth and knowledge. How do we know what we know things? What does it mean to have knowledge? Um, under what circumstances can we say that we know a particular proposition or a particular fact? Um, and, and what are the criteria by which we should, uh, evaluate others' claims to knowledge, to access to truth, to fact, and so on? Um, obviously there are, there are connections to the, uh, the, the legal area insofar as at least what I would think of as the mainstream uh, understanding of what it is that that, that courts do is they're, they're institutions for getting at truth or institutions for developing knowledge in a particular way through a particular set of uh, procedures in the common law um, uh, model that's the, the adversarial process through which um, uh, partisan advocates uh, present their own uh, versions their, uh, of events, their own versions of, of uh uh, of what we might call truth, and then we rely on a um, on a, a hopefully disinterested neutral arbiter to determine what the truth um, is. Um, so a lot of my work uh, goes to trying to think about whether it is the case that judicial institutions, how effective judicial institutions actually are at um, identifying what we might think of as truth with a capital T, um, whether that's possible. Um, I don't so much get into whether there is such a thing as truth with a capital T, but obviously that question underlies a lot of the questions that I do ask about evidence about judicial institutions and how we might think about making them uh, better if that's possible through changing procedures, through changing rules of evidence and so on. So in this paper, you kind of frame your inquiry around the around Rawls, John Rawls's theories of of political liberalism. And as you know, for Rawls, the concept of of pluralism is really important in sort of defining when government action is or isn't legitimate. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the Rawlsian theories that you're using and the kind of pluralism that Rawls is talking about as opposed to the kind of pluralism you're interested in in this paper. Sure. Um, Rawls is is uh, <clears throat> primarily known for two books. The first, A Theory of Justice, is probably the more famous one. Uh, but I find his second book much more 
interesting political liberalism uh, in, in which he asked just what I take to be this the fundamental question of, uh, of, of a society that we would characterize as liberal, which is how is it possible um, for, uh, for a, to have such a thing as a liberal state that respects all citizens as uh, uh, possessing some set of uh, equal political rights, or maybe maybe rights isn't even the right word, but um, of of being entitled to uh, some measure of equal political equal political respect simply by virtue of their status as citizens. Um, and when is and under what circumstances is it? legitimate for the state, which it must do, uh, to coercively impose um, policies on citizens who may disagree with those policies. So in political liberalism, Rawls talks about this problem of what he calls reasonable pluralism. I redefine that in my paper uh, and call it normative pluralism. But what Rawls essentially means is that um, Everyone in a liberal society has a different set of you could he Rawls calls them comprehensive viewpoints. You could think of them as as meta ethical principles, um, uh, moral foundations, right? We're we're all coming uh, we're we're all coming um into the political sphere, into the social sphere, um, with this different set of background principles from which we evaluate uh questions of judgment, um. And so on. And, and his fundamental problem then is un- and under what circumstances is the state, um, can the state legitimately act to impose coercively some policy or set of policies um, that's grounded in a particular moral viewpoint or a particular comprehensive viewpoint on citizens who reject that viewpoint? Um, so the contribution that I'm making in my paper is that it, it occurred to me, maybe it wasn't as obvious to, to Rawls as he was writing, or I think this is this is a point that's maybe become more salient for a variety of reasons uh, in the past, you know, 15, 20 years. Um, not only is society characterized by these entrenched, um, uh, irresolvable disagreements about questions of moral value or moral perspective, but we are also deeply divided by questions of empirical fact. Um, uh, and, and Dan Kahan at Yale Law School has done a lot of really interesting work showing that empirical disagreement, at least sometimes, is ultimately rooted in uh, our conceptions of our own identity. And that way, it, it looks a lot like uh, moral or religious disagreement, at least under some circumstances. So so the question I'm asking in this paper is, um, does this problem that Rawls identifies, this problem of pluralism, um, that, that he talks about in the normative context with respect to disagreement about questions of, of, of moral value or perspective, does it also apply or can it also apply to entrenched disagreements about questions of empirical fact? And if so, um, how can we resolve it? That is to say, are there circumstances under which a state can legitimately impose coercive policies that are grounded in some empirical viewpoint or epistemic claim um, onto members of the public who reject that epistemic viewpoint or reject the the factual uh, premises on which the policy is grounded? Right. I really liked the distinction you made between normative pluralism and epistemic pluralism, right? The, like the difference between values and 
beliefs about what's true or or what's not true. And you suggest in the paper that it's possible that in some cases, epistemic pluralism actually reflects something that's, that maybe is really normative pluralism. So, so how do we disaggregate the two? In other words, how do we determine when what we're talking about really is about kind of epistemic disagreement as opposed to fundamental normative disagreement? And to the extent we can disaggregate the two, how should we think about them in relation to each other? In other words, can you use the same tools for evaluating when political action is valid that Rawls suggests using in in a normative context, in an epistemic context as well? Or do we need to think about them differently? Um, the first thing I would say is that I, I do want to acknowledge, and I try to acknowledge in the paper, that it's it's better to think of these two forms of pluralism that I identify, normative pluralism and, and epistemic pluralism, more as ends on a spectrum rather than as completely distinct uh, concepts. Um, and, and that's so because, you know, David, David Hume said that you, you, uh, shouldn't, uh, uh, derive, uh, ought from is or is from ought, right? That the, the normative and the, uh, the, uh, the empirical should be, should be distinct. But that's not generally how we think. Um, it, it is true in many circumstances that, our views of uh, of value or of normative truth or moral truth, to some extent, rest on our understanding of what is the way the world as it exists, and the reverse is true as well. Um, our 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 views about the way the world is sometimes reflect our underlying commitments about the way the world ought to be. Um, so I use as one example of. Uh, uh, a seemingly empirical disagreement that I suspect ultimately reflects a not very deeply buried uh, uh, normative disagreement, um, the, the disagreement about uh, fetal pain and the point in pregnancy at which fetuses are uh, able to feel pain. This is uh, often or, or sometimes used uh, as an argument for regulating ab- abortion uh, earlier um, in the pregnancy than, um, than uh, cases like Casey um, would allow, I suspect, and I don't purport to prove this empirically, but my intuition is <clears throat> that that at least many of the people who are arguing on the basis of fetal pain that we should regulate pregnancy earlier probably just have a moral problem with abortion. Um, uh, the, the issue is, is, you know, fetal pain is, a, um, let's say, an, an, an uh, epistemic dog that's kind of wagging the normative tail in that argument, right? The real problem is that you think abortion is immoral and should be regulated anyway, and, uh, and there's this sort of superficial factual disagreement about the point in pregnancy uh, in which a fetus can feel pain. Um, so I certainly think it's true that there that 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 again there there's this connection between the normative and the epistemic that it goes in both directions that we sometimes do derive is from ought that we sometimes derive ought from is but I also think it's true that there are at least some disagreements that are primarily factual as opposed to primarily normative um and the the best distinction that I can offer there is to ask whether the parties to the disagreement look like they ultimately share more or less the same underlying 
normative commitments? Um, and if so, that's a good indication that maybe the, the disagreement is more about facts than it is about uh, value. Um, and I take, uh, you know, the, the, the primary case study that I look at in this paper is uh, uh, mandatory vaccination, challenges to vaccination based on certain um, empirical arguments about vaccines being unsafe or ineffective um, and so on. It seems to me, um, you know, you, maybe you could disagree a little bit around the edges here, but um, it seems to me that the parties to that disagreement more or less share the same underlying normative conception of, say, what good health is. Everyone agrees, for example, that um, autism is suboptimal. Let me not say everyone. Um <laughs> Uh, Many measles, measles yeah. certainly is not a good thing. Measles certainly is not a good thing. Um, you know, the the, the 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 neurodiversity movement maybe would would reject the premise that that, that autism is is suboptimal. But 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 I think there's a um, many many parties, even on the anti-vaccination side, accept that uh, both autism and measles are suboptimal health outcomes. And I think, uh, at, at least with respect to many many participants in this debate, that the the, the the disagreement really is just about um, what is, as a matter of fact, um, is vaccination or not vaccination more likely to produce the best health outcome? Um, uh, measles is bad. Autism is bad. Um, uh, we just disagree factually about whether vaccinating a child or not vaccinating a child uh, is is more likely to to uh, to produce a better outcome. And I think that that the the vaccine disagreement is not sui generis in that regard. I think that there are um, many disagreements in the public sphere that are um, at least not completely reducible to. Uh, to disagreements about value. Obviously, this gets complicated. I would say climate change is one in which there are conflicting values and also uh, uh, genuine disagreements about fact. Um, so I don't want to suggest that that everything is reducible to one or the other, but to the extent that, and I believe this to be true, um, at least not every significant social, um, seeming, not every seemingly uh, factual uh, disagreement is ultimately reducible to disagreement about value, uh, then I think there is, um, I, I think the concept of epistemic pluralism as distinct from normative holds up conceptually and that there's something useful to be, uh, to be achieved by looking at it as a, as a separate distinct category. Right. So I, I really like your distinction between like the vaccination debate and the climate change debate, because it really helped me kind of conceptualize why we would put the climate change debate on one side of this kind of normative epistemic distinction and the vaccination debate on, on the other in the sense that the, the underlying dispute when it comes to climate change really does seem to be about sort of what society should look like in a lot of ways and not necessarily so much about kind of facts on the ground or kind of the, the truth claims related to whether or not climate change is anthropogenic or not. Whereas when it comes to the vaccination debate, it really, I think, you know, it really does come down to like, what are the facts about what's going to happen when people get vaccinated and is it likely to produce better outcomes or, or not? But but one of the things you, you talked about in the paper that I thought was really interesting was sort of, why is it that people would hold these kinds of 
epistemically unreasonable beliefs. I mean, when it comes to vaccination, for example, I mean, it seems really quite, quite clear that, you know, vaccines produce better outcomes. And that's like not, that's not really something that's sort of meaningfully up for debate in a scientific sense. Why would people hold alternative epistemic beliefs when it seems so clearly determined by <laughs> by, by experts? Yeah, well, there's a, there's a lot in that question. Uh, one one could make uh, an entire semester out of that question. Um, but but let me say a couple of things. You know, Rawls when he's talking about. Um, uh, normative pluralism refers to the burdens of judgment and the operations of uh, free institutions, right? Um, and I think there's a lot in there once you once you unpack it. Um, uh, where to start? Um, people people tend to form their uh, empirical. Well, let me let me not overstate that. Um, social networks can play a substantial role in the forming of empirical viewpoints. Um, again, Dan Kahan's work on identity protective cognition is fascinating and has certainly influenced the way that I think about a lot of this. Um, most people, uh, law professors included, do not sit down and in the first instance form their empirical beliefs about the world by reading a bunch of peer-reviewed studies in medical journals or anywhere else. Um, we form our beliefs uh, from taking in information that surrounds us, from the media, from our social acquaintances, from our personal experiences. Um, uh, the, the online world presents uh, endless opportunity to seek out confirming information, right? To seek out information that uh, confirms the viewpoint that we are, for whatever reason, predisposed to hold. And I guess getting back to your your last question a little bit, there's um, values certainly play a role here, right? Normative priors certainly play a role here. Um, I, I'd also recommend, I think I, um, I, I cite in the paper uh, at one point, Jennifer Reich's uh, 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 qualitative study of anti-vaccinationist parents in which she just interviews a bunch of mostly mothers. One thing she finds is that it tends to be mothers who are making uh, these healthcare decisions uh, about why um, why they are vaccine hesitant. Um, and it, it's it's difficult to pin down any one answer to that. But what you see is that um, uh, social networks play a, a, a significant role. Um, there's often a certain um, mistrust of, uh, of authority. You know, you said, why don't we just defer to experts? Well, there's a long American tradition of uh, being skeptical of claims to expertise. And um, I don't know that that's there are pros and cons to that uh, uh, to that strain of sort of I don't want to say anti-intellectualism, but there there, there are pros and, con- and cons to uh, this strain of American uh, contrarianism, right? Um, so I think I think part of that's playing a role. I do think that um, I think the explosion of information and the proliferation of opportunities online um, to to sort of craft one's own epistemic world is contributing uh, to this, um, what you might think of as epistemic fracturing, right? I'm not the first person to say that, but, um, but, but I think that the fact that it has become much easier to 
seek out and find information that confirms the beliefs that for whatever reason one is already disposed to hold um, certainly contributes to the proliferation of what I end up calling uh, uh, epistemic unreasonableness, both with respect to the, the, the vaccination stuff and elsewhere. Right. So at least as I understand it, a big part of Rawls's project was thinking about when we should sort of politically defer Mm -hmm. to normative pluralism and when we shouldn't. Um, And what was interesting to me about your paper was sort of the way you engage with that question in an epistemic context. And I was wondering if you talk a little bit about sort of like how that question differs, Mm -hmm. if at all, when it comes to questions of epistemic pluralism as opposed to normative pluralism. In other words, when should we let people disagree about the facts, even if they're wrong? And when should we tell them, sorry, but no? Mm -hmm. Um, So Rawls in the the normative pluralism context ends up saying (laughs) that we are going to distinguish between uh, reasonable and unreasonable disagreement or, or reasonable and unreasonable, uh, comprehensive viewpoints or moral frameworks. Um, and he says that, uh, he, he articulates this principle of what he calls public reason. The idea essentially being that, um, when public decisions are being made, um, either by directly by policymakers or by citizens acting in a in a political way, um, uh, deliberating public policy, deciding how to vote, et cetera, um, Reasons should be articulated um, by reference to what Rawls calls the overlapping consensus of reasonable comprehensive viewpoints, which essentially just reflect the fundamental normative commitments of liberal democracy, right? The idea that um, all citizens are possessed of a certain political equality, um, duties of reciprocity and civility, um, rather than appealing directly to any particular – to any individual's particular idiosyncratic moral viewpoint, um, reason should be drawn from this overlapping set of norms that all reasonable persons share. Now, of course, the word reasonable is doing a lot of work there um, insofar as the, the implication of that, which Rawls really just kind of tosses off in one footnote and doesn't uh, doesn't elaborate on very much, is that the unreasonable um, uh, uh, the, the person holding an unreasonable comprehensive viewpoint and moral framework can simply be disregarded. Um, we don't care what the Nazi thinks. Um, not because we believe our normative commitments are true with a capital T, and this is very important for Rawls, but simply because um, – they are the shared commitments of our society, right? His his perspective is a is a constructivist one, right? Um, uh, to the extent that there is this common consensus among most members of liberal democratic society that certain values are essential, um, those are the values uh, to which we should refer uh, and defer um, when we're deliberating and, and making decisions about public policy. Um, so what I ask in the paper is whether we can um, adopt a similar perspective in uh, attempting to resolve disagreements that are grounded in epistemic pluralism. In other words, is there such a thing as um, uh, an overlapping consensus of reasonable epistemic viewpoints, um, by which I mean epistemic methodologies, not substantive viewpoints. In other words, is there a consensus about how 
truth is to be determined, about how facts are to be found. Um, and what I end up saying is I think there is, at least with respect to a particular subset of questions that I define as scientific questions, questions about um, uh, observable, testable regularities in the external world. Um, I, I define it a little bit more precisely in the paper, and I should have that definition open in front of me, but I don't right now. But that's um, that's essentially the idea, right? That there's this subset of scientific questions um, that 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 go to um, um, as to which we do have this consensus, the social consensus about how we are to approach those questions. Um, we, are, we are to approach those questions um, through a method that, um, among other things, uh, assumes the truth of scientific naturalism, that tests propositions empirically, um, that is... Uh, that, that, that applies, uh, you know, Robert Merton's four principles of scientific truth. Um, keeping in mind, of course, that this is all, um, uh, um, aspirational, right? We, we understand that the scientific process day to day doesn't work, uh, perfectly as, as Robert Merton, uh, as Robert Merton's idealized version, right? But the idea is that we do have, which, what I will loosely call the scientific method, um, realizing there is, there is much, uh, debate and deliberation about exactly what that method consists of or whether it even exists. I think it does exist at least to the extent that we can identify, um, a, a, a generalized set of principles involving, um, uh, the making and testing of predictions, uh, by which, um, uh, a subset of empirical truths are to be determined, right? Um, so I, I identify that as, um, as the core of what I call the principle of epistemic reasonableness, at least with respect to this subset of scientific questions. Um, and, and what I end up saying is, well, well two things. First of all, I believe it to be true that that most everyone accepts that principle with respect to um, the construction of most empirical beliefs. Um, but once in a while, um, we get these circumstances in which uh, some group uh, – Explicitly or implicitly, and you see a little bit of both in the in the anti-vaccinationist uh, community, um, rejects what I define as the principle of epistemic reasonableness with respect to a particular set of empirical questions, and that happens for a variety of reasons. But what I ultimately end up saying is, um, um, to the extent that an empirical viewpoint is articulated and defended in a way that violates this principle of epistemic reasonableness, um, the state can legitimately disregard um, or discount um, that measure or that 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 instance. Um, that's not the right word. Uh, the state can legitimately disregard or discount um, uh, that manifestation of epistemic pluralism in policymaking, right? In, mm -hmm. in other words, if if the anti-vaccinationist <clears throat> empirical objection. Um, uh, to, to vaccination policies simply, uh, relies on, uh, pseudoscientific rationales or a rejection of, um, um, the, the, the methods of empirical science. Um, the, the state is not obligated to defer or to accommodate, um, reasons 
empirical reasons or empirical objections sort of grounded in 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 uh in that line of thinking if that makes sense mhm mhm yeah so one of the things that really struck me when i was reading your paper was i was kind of wondering like whether you think this is more about the epistemic reasonableness of the beliefs themselves or the sort of consequential kind of outcomes of adhering to or honoring those beliefs. So it seems like, you know, like part of the problem here is that like people who are anti-vaccination are not only wrong mm-hmm. about like factually wrong <laughs> about their beliefs about vaccines, mm-hmm. but those beliefs have really bad outcomes mm-hmm. right? in the sense that like people get people get terrible diseases and die, right? And 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 you mentioned in passing a, a couple other kinds of kind of pretty clearly epistemic epistemically incorrect beliefs that people hold things like say being like and like not believing in evolution mm-hmm. for example now that seems pretty clearly wrong too but but by contrast like not believing in evolution doesn't really have any particular outcomes at all it's like it's going to happen whether you believe in it or not right um i mean so should we think about from a political liberalism perspective should we think about those two different uh epistemically unreasonable beliefs in a in a different way? I think we can think about them differently, but the difference is at the level of policymaking rather than at the level of political legitimacy. Um, you know, I guess I would say, first of all, um, you know, one, one can envision um, bad outcomes from a lack of belief in evolution. Certain kinds of biological sciences might not be funded. Um, you're speaking to me from Kentucky, which I believe is the home of the Creation Science Museum. Um, <laughs> it, is, it is. It is. It is indeed the proud home of the Creation Science Museum and the Ark, the 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 the, the giant Ark as well. Our Ark experience, I believe it is. Yeah, but, but but I think I mean I think the policy question that you're raising is 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 a valid one. I was just reading. Uh, a couple of days ago, there, there was a headline online about some Oxford researcher making the claim that invisible aliens are breeding with human beings to uh, prevent climate change or something <laughs> like that, right? So there are a lot, and, and let me just say, you know, for all of the the work in the paper about how we should defer to experts, I'm pretty comfortable saying I just reject that empirical premise um, that 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 I don't quite buy the invisible alien thing. Um, people believe. Um, there, there, there are a lot of what I would call epistemically unreasonable beliefs out there in the world, and I absolutely do not advocate that the state should bring down a hammer of orthodoxy to stamp out all of them coercively. Number one, I don't believe that's possible. Um, and number two, I think we would I, – I, I have no desire to live in an epistemically totalitarian state. In fact, I think the beauty of the liberal state that Rawls describes is that it does allow and encourage this kind of uh, – uh, pluralist flourishing. Um, and you know, going back to John Stuart Mill's uh, uh, rationale for for the freedom of speech and the freedom of conscience, um, to some extent allowing um, and encouraging the, uh, the, the expression of even what seem like clearly wrong viewpoints um, is productive and useful insofar as uh, once in a while someone who seems like a crackpot may have stumbled onto the truth. Um, so I, I absolutely do not advocate that the state should should go out and coercively impose a single model of truth upon all dissenters. Um, but I also would say that every policy re- rests on some explicit or implicit set 
of factual premises. Um, I, I think uh, uh, at, at one point in the paper, I have a footnote uh, uh, pointing out that that ev- every uh, every policy the federal government makes um, at least tacitly relies on the premise that the government is not run by reptile people, which actually seems to be a belief that some people in the world hold. Um, so the question, you know, becomes: uh, I, I think from a policy perspective, you're absolutely right that um well 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 two things um the question is not should we or can we compel anti-vaccinationists to change their minds and accept the you know the 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 truth of the mainstream medical consensus that vaccination is safe and effective i don't think we can i don't think we should try but i do think it's legitimate for the state in in deciding what vaccination policy should be um can and should legitimately uh, take into account the facts reflected in the mainstream medical consensus that vaccination is safe, that it's effective at preventing diseases, um, and that while it isn't without risk, um, that the uh, the benefits of widespread vaccination outweigh those risks. Um, and also, uh, particularly with respect to the, the, the mandatory component, uh, the fact that a level of herd immunity is necessary to protect the entire population. Um, so sure, absolutely, at the policy level, we need to make careful decisions about when and under what circumstances the uh, the coercive apparatus of the state is going to be enforced, not to attempt to change people's minds, but to nevertheless compel people to comply with some policy or some requirement that they may reject uh, the factual predicates of. Under some circumstances, that's simply necessary. Um, I think vaccination is a good example of uh, of a circumstance where uh, at the policy level, I think that that the cost-benefit trade-off probably is worth it. Um, climate change might be another another good example there, right? If 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 we believe in, and let me say one reason that I don't say more about climate change in the paper is that I am not uh, nearly as deeply versed in the literature on that uh, as I would like to be to, to have an informed opinion about it. But you know, if we believe that the the risks of um, catastrophic climate change are such that uh, action is uh, is needed right away to prevent some further catastrophe down the line. Um, uh, and, and, and to the extent that reflects what I take to be a, a more or less settled consensus among climate scientists, I would say it's legitimate um, for the state to uh, accept that uh, consensus and to adopt policies uh Taking as true those facts, notwithstanding the fact that there's obviously some uh, some some portion of the public that 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 factually rejects it. Of course, the sequel to this paper, the um, which which I'm going to get around to writing someday, um, this paper assumes that the epistemic uh, mainstream is in control of the apparatus of the state and the outliers are not. And it and the, it's framed in such a the, the the question framed is what what does the mainstream owe to the outliers when the mainstream is in control of the state apparatus? Uh, maybe with respect to climate change, the roles are reversed there. And I'll have to think a little bit about uh, about what that looks like. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that, that's actually perfect because I mean, okay. So I, I must say, I love the paper and I found it totally convincing. Um, maybe in part because it plays to all of my own normative uh, prejudices. <laughs> so, 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 so maybe I'm, I'm just, you know, maybe I'm just accepting the, the arguments because they, they're, they're sympathetic to the things I already believe. But in relation to the last question you asked, I, I couldn't 
help but wonder, right? If I accept your argument from a policy perspective mm-hmm. about how the state should think about and manage epistemically unreasonable beliefs, right? And to say that the state effectively can and should reject them when the policy sort of circumstances demand it. How should I think about the rational basis test? Uh, sorry, can you elaborate a little bit on what? So, you know, the, the kind of the premise of the rational basis test is that, you know, courts are going to accept legislative judgment, even if it seems totally inconsistent with good policy, so long as it's possible that someone could believe that it were true, even if it's not actually mm-hmm. true. And it, <clears throat> It seems like the argument you're making here suggests that, that, you know, just like you're saying, you know, if the legislature, if the government is dominated by people with epistemically unreasonable beliefs, what, what should we do about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, um, Allison Larson had a paper in the NYU Law Review about exactly that topic last year. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, it's a really oh. interesting paper. And her, her thesis essentially is that in an age of alternative facts, we should reconsider the traditional argument that legislatures are uh, have greater epistemic authority to find true facts than courts do. Um, you know, the, the traditional argument is something along the lines of that the legislatures have greater access to experts. Um, uh, they can hold hearings. They can proactively seek out information. They are properly incentivized and so on. And, uh, and, and her thesis essentially is that maybe we should, we should rethink that in this age of, um, uh, uh, political polarization, alternative facts, uh, what I would call epistemic fracturing and so on. It's an interesting question. Um, it's not a question that's directly raised by this paper. Um, but thinking through it a little bit, I guess I'm, I'm a little bit sympathetic to, to the argument. Um, I, as you may know from looking at my other work, I'm somewhat skeptical of court's ability to, um, <laughs> to be competent fact finders when it comes to engaging, uh, uh, substantive expertise beyond the scope of sort of the core expertise of judges as as uh, uh, legal interpreters uh, and and experts in legal reasoning. Um, so it's a tricky question, right? Insofar as um, uh, to what extent should or do 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 we want courts to defer to fact finding processes that we may have some reason to believe are motivated by um, uh, or are the product of uh, um, processes that are themselves not entirely reliable in terms of getting at the true facts. Um, you know, I'll have to think about that a little bit more. Off the top of my head, I guess I'm, I'm a little bit less um, uh, optimistic uh, than Professor Larson, for example, is uh, that that courts – have that capacity to effectively um, to to be more effective finders of empirical facts uh, um, than than legislatures are. What we see in the vaccine cases, uh, and thankfully this continues to be the case uh, today, uh, is that courts almost uniformly de- simply defer to legislative judgments about the safety and effectiveness of vaccination, and don't 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 seem to be open to entertaining. Um, 
uh, uh, attempts by anti-vaccinationists to, to, to argue the facts um, on that point. I guess I tend, I, I guess I continue to think that that's the right course, not because I'm, not because I have great confidence in legislatures, but because I, I'm not sure I have great confidence um, in the adversarial process. Um, I, I don't have great confident confidence in, uh, in, in, in court's ability to find, um, to effectively find facts or determine truth with respect to, uh, areas of technical disagreement, um, lying outside the domain of judges, substantive expertise. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, four more CEG, James R. Dillon expertise on trial 2018, <laughs> where I talk a lot about that. <laughs> awesome. <clears throat> well, James, this has been a great conversation and I'm intrigued by the Elizabeth Larson paper you mentioned. I'm going to have to check it out. And, uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. It has been a pleasure. Thank you, Brian. Architect Dolores Gould, what's your IQ? 138. And your EQ? EQ. Your economics quotient? Oh, I don't know much about economics. Attorney Ed Denton, how high is your economics quotient, Ed? Economics? I never really had time to get into it. Lots of people, even people you'd ordinarily consider smart, have EQs that could stand improvement. How about yours? Do you know what makes the American economic system work? It's important that you do. You see, we all have to make decisions about our economic system. And the more you know about it, the more you'll be able to make it work for you. What can you do to improve your EQ and learn more about economics? The place to start is your local library. It's full of interesting information on the American economic system and your part in it. The American economic system. We should all learn more about it. A public service message of the Advertising Council and U.S. Department of Commerce. Presented by this station.